Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made to you, I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. Two days ago, on Friday, November 11th, we celebrated Veterans Day. Now, it has its beginning as a holiday back in World War I, when an armistice was signed on uh, to, by both opposing sides to effectively bring to an end the fighting. And it was declared that that would end at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, effectively ending the war. Now, the war isn't officially over. It was declared over on June 28, 1919, when the Treaty of Versailles was signed. And then just a few months later, on November 11, 1919, the first Armistice Day was celebrated. It was meant to honor all of the veterans who served in the war to end all wars. Of course, that war didn't end all wars. And so a few years after World War II, Armistice Day became Veterans Day to honor all veterans of all times. Now, since its beginning, one of the symbols of honor and respect and remembrance is the red poppy. It came about during World War I. Uh, there was a special phenomenon that occurred uh, during that time. There's a certain type of poppy in the Belgium or the Flanders area. It's called the corn poppy or the red field poppy because of where it tends to grow. It tends to bloom on the edges of fields. The seeds of this flower will lie dormant in the ground until the ground is disturbed, like when a farmer tills or plows the soil, and then it blooms, and so you see it a lot of times at the edges of fields. Of course, war also disturbs the soil, and especially when the fields began to be used as cemeteries, as they would dig up uh, the earth to create graves, uh, the poppies would be disturbed and they would start to bloom amongst the graves. And there was a poem written about this by a Canadian doctor, Lieutenant Colonel John McRae. He saw this happening and on one day he lost a very dear friend of his, a fellow soldier, and he was the one called to preside at the burial service. And so he saw over the burial and how they placed the white cross to mark the site amidst all the other 
white crosses. And he sat back and just looked at what was before him, and he wrote these words. In Flanders fields the poppies blow, between the crosses row on row that mark our place, and in the sky the larks, still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. When I think about veterans and those in service, I'm drawn to a passage of scripture, particularly the verse where Jesus says, there is no greater love than this, than when one lays down one's life for their friends. Today's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of John. And the setting is that Jesus has just called all of the disciples together uh, for the Passover celebration. We refer to it as the Last Supper. They were in the upper room and gathered together. We call it the Last Supper because it was shortly before his crucifixion. When I think of this passage of scripture and Jesus saying these kind of final words to his friends, I remember a friend of mine from several years back. She was older than I was, and at the time she had two children in high school. I had a great respect for her because she had dedicated her whole life to serving others. She had been in the military, and when she got out, she then became a therapist to help others. And one day she went to the doctor and they gave her the diagnosis of cancer. And they told her we weren't able to catch it in time. They only gave her a few months to live. And so suddenly these last few months, all of her focus was on what she could say to her children. She wasn't afraid to die. She was a woman of deep, profound faith. But she was concerned about her children. She knew that she would be leaving them, and so she wanted every word she spoke to them be, to be of utmost importance, words and instructions and feelings that would last them the rest of their life because she wouldn't be with them. I think of that when I think of Jesus in the upper room. He knows that his death is drawing near, and these are some of the final moments he has with his friends before he leaves them. He knows that he won't be physically with them anymore in the way that he had been. And so these words that he says are of utmost importance. He's not wasting any time. He's telling them the things they need to hear that will sustain them for the rest of their lives. If you ever want to know what God's plan is for you or what you need to do in life, or what's most important to Christ, go to this section of John. Because you read this and you hear the heart of Jesus' ministry. Jesus told them, I am telling you these things that my joy might be in you 
and your joy might be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There are three things that I want to discuss this morning that can help us live a life where we love like Jesus. First, to love is to be thoughtful and kind. Too often, we read the phrase, uh, to lay down one's life, and we get caught up in the enormity of that phrase, to lay down one's life. In fact, we, we tend to focus just on that passage, and we forget what our commandment is. Jesus said, this commandment I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, greater love, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And here's the key. He goes on to say, and you are my friends. In other words, he's saying that he has such a great love. He has the greatest love possible because he lays down his life for his friends, and he declares that we are his friends. Our commandment is to love one another like Jesus loves. Sometimes we focus on if we lay down our lives, then we'll get the love of Jesus, and that's backwards. We already have the love of Christ, and if we practice that love in our lives enough, then we find that we are giving of ourselves for others. But we don't have to wait for monumental times. More often than not, we have plenty of opportunities every single day to just be kind and thoughtful to those around us. It was just five years ago that researchers and explorers discovered the wreck of the USS Indianapolis. Now, I've read a couple books on the USS Indianapolis. The, uh, the one I just read uh, a few weeks ago is one entitled Out of the Depths by Edgar Heller, one of the survivors of the wreck. And the second one I read several years ago was uh, In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton. And I'm always amazed by the people who were able to survive the tragedy. Uh, there were only 316 survivors in fact, this past May, they had their uh, survivors reunion, and there were only two living survivors left, um, a man by the name of LeBeau and one by the name of Bray. And just a couple months ago, Cletus LeBeau passed away. And so there is only one living survivor of the wreck of the Indianapolis, and that is Harold Bray. If you don't know the story, the USS Indianapolis uh, was on its final voyage, its mission, and it was carrying components for the atomic bomb uh, that they delivered to be put together that it was hoped that they would bring an end to the war. After the components were dropped off at the island in the South Pacific, they went on their way, and their mission was so top secret, nobody really kept track of them. And they were in waters patrolled by enemy submarines, and a Japanese submarine uh, hit the Indianapolis with two torpedoes. And there was such damage caused that the Indianapolis went down in just about 12 minutes. 
there were 1,195 sailors and Marines on board, and only 316 survived. It was a terrible tragedy. And when I read about it, I am astonished by the bravery and the honor of those who died and those who survived. But I am equally amazed at how they lived their lives outside of the tragedy. Before that ever occurred, the kind of men that they were, these were men of honor and kindness and thoughtfulness because they had dedicated themselves to service. Two that uh, really stand out to me are the chaplain and the doctor aboard the Indianapolis. Father Thomas Conway and Dr. Lewis Haynes actually became friends on board. They were very close. Uh, they were some of the oldest sailors on board at the ripe old age of 37 and 32. And because of that, they kind of uh, hung out together. They would go on shore leave together and have very deep theological conversations. Both were men of very deep faith. In fact, on Sunday mornings, when Thomas or uh, Father Conway would be leading the Catholic services, when those would be over, all of the Catholics would go and relieve the Protestants. They would come to service, which would be led by Dr. Haynes. And so they had this kind of give and take and a, a very long-lasting friendship. Well, weeks before the Indianapolis was scheduled for its final voyage, it was in San Francisco with no assignment on the horizon. And so many of the men were going home to visit their families. Dr. Haynes would have loved to have done that, but his wife and children lived in Connecticut on the other side of the country and he just couldn't afford to get there. And so he spent his time in his quarters reading. Well, one afternoon, Father Conway came by and asked, why aren't you going home? And Dr. Haynes said, well, I just can't afford the train ticket. Well, he went back to his book and Father Conway left and then he returned a few minutes later and he had a stack of cash and he placed it on the desk in front of of Dr. Haynes and he said, now you can afford it and now you need to go. That gift so blessed Dr. Haynes. He was able to go home and be with his wife and children for a few weeks before that last voyage. Years later, he would speak at survivors reunions and tell that particular story about Father Conway. And he would talk about not only how much it blessed him and his family, but especially how much joy Father Conway had in making that gift. Remember the words of Christ. These things I say unto you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my commandment that you love one another. The more we love every single day and just the kindness and the thoughtful things that we do, we'll find it not only blesses those around us, but it brings joy to us. It makes our lives better as well. It's that joy of Christ filling us. And so second, to love is to follow Christ. 
sometimes we think we have to go looking for ways to lay down our life. But again, we're commanded just to love one another. We don't have to look for opportunities. They will find us. Now, in fact, when we focus on ourselves and what we can do, we might be missing something right nearby. The more we follow Christ, the more we are in tune with those around us. The more we practice love, it's like our eyes are opened to those around us, to their needs, their desires. And so the more we practice the love of Christ, it heightens our senses and helps us to respond to the needs in the world around us. For Lieutenant Chuck Gwynn, he found this out. He was a pilot in World War II. He flew a Lockheed Ventura PV-1 bomber. And in the summer of 1945, he was flying runs in the South Pacific, looking for enemy planes and submarines. On one particular occasion, he was flying and he had been having trouble with his antenna. Now, the antenna was supposed to have a weighted sock on it uh, to stabilize it, but the sock kept coming off and he was so angry and frustrated. And so he thought that he was just gonna try to fix something while they were in the air. And so they, he dropped the plane to a level of, of 3,000 feet and he went back to the bombing bay and he looked down prepared to figure out something, but he looked down and he could see the water below and he saw an oil spill. And he thought it must be an enemy submarine. So he quickly ran back up to the cockpit and he brought the plane down to 300 feet. And that's when he could see men in the water. He had just discovered the survivors of the USS Indianapolis. It had sunk four days earlier. No one knew that it had gone down. No one's sure if uh, a distress signal was able to be sent off before it went down, although no one acknowledged hearing it. Twice, there were delays where the USS Indianapolis was supposed to arrive at a location and people noticed that they were late, but instead of raising the alarm, they just thought, well, their orders were changed. And so absolutely no one was looking for people on the Indianapolis or even the ship itself. For Lieutenant Chuck Gwynn, he just happened to look down at that moment and catch them. He could see that the men in the water were treading in, in individual pairs and, and small groups. And there was a swath of, of several miles that the survivors were spread out. He dropped a life raft and then he broke radio silence and he issued an emergency call and asked anyone within range to come and help find these survivors. He was able to go back and kind of rig up the antenna just long enough to get a, an accurate reading on their location so people knew where to come. One of the first to respond to that call was a pilot by the name of Lieutenant Adrian Marks. He flew an amphibious plane, but he had never even tried an open sea landing. In fact, all of the members of his squadron had such 
disastrous results every time they tried to land in the open seas that it was deemed too dangerous and they were prohibited from ever trying again. When Lieutenant Marks and his crew flew over the men in the water, they saw the danger. They were surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of sharks. They could see the attacks happening while they watched and so Lieutenant Marks asked his crew what they thought about attempting a landing in the open sea. And unanimously, they all voted that that's what they had to try. The first time they came in to land, the waves were so violent that the landing was hard enough that it bounced the plane back up in the air 14 or 15 feet. But they were able to circle back and come in and they were eventually able to land. Lieutenant Marks had to always keep an eye on the wings of the plane amidst the waves so it, the plane wouldn't be flipped over. It caused such damage to the plane that the crew had to patch all the holes where water was starting to rush in. But one by one, they started to take on the survivors that they could and they shared their provisions with them until the plane was filled beyond capacity. And then they started loading survivors on the wings of the airplane, helping them to be strapped down so they'd be safe. Lieutenant Gwen would speak to survivors' reunions years later and tell them just how miraculous their rescue was. He said, for a pilot like Lieutenant Gwen, they fly typically at a level of 10,000 feet. And that gives them a 30 degree angle to the sea below so that they're able to see kind of a width of five miles and they can see four miles ahead of them. So there's basically 20 square miles that they can uh, look for planes and submarines. To think of seeing uh, an individual in the water is just impossible. It, it wouldn't happen. Even if you were looking for them, and of course, Lieutenant Gwen wasn't looking for anybody, well, it may be possible in those circumstances if there were large clusters and people were in those bright yellow life rafts, maybe it could be seen in that situation. But the survivors of the USS Indianapolis didn't have those yellow life rafts. They had life vests that were dark gray blending in with the water. In fact, the life, or the life vests were made for a maximum of 48 hours. After 48 hours, they become waterlogged. And so these life vests were kind of a double-edged sword and they kept only the head above water. And so everything else, the men just had to try to keep uh, their uh, mouth and their nose above water. Well, during that time, uh, Lieutenant Marks was saying, all of that is possible to find someone if, those, if there's several life rafts, if there's a large clump, and only if you're looking for someone. But for some reason, Lieutenant Gwen brought his plane down to a, a low enough level, and he just happened to be looking out the bombing bay directly at the water below him, and all of those circumstances made it such a, a miraculous circumstance. Lieutenant Marks was a man of God and he absolutely believed that God had used Lieutenant Gwen 
And Lieutenant Gwen was such a man of kind of heightened senses, always looking for what might be wrong. And that led to their recovery. Such a miraculous circumstance only brought by the hand of God. I would say that Lieutenant Marks was also used by God in that circumstance. He had never even tried an open sea landing. It was forbidden and the seas were rough and he and his crew all voted that that's what they had to try. They put their lives, their livelihood on the line for the sake of others. When we follow Christ, there'll be ample opportunities day after day to show kindness and thoughtfulness. But the more we practice loving like Christ, the more we're able to see and respond to those opportunities. And so third, the more we practice loving like Christ, the more we become like Christ. Think of the early disciples. When Jesus gathered them together in the upper room, who were they? They were confused and frightened. They didn't understand why Jesus was talking about his death. They were ordinary people given an extraordinary situation, but they were ordinary just like us. They weren't the holy men of God that we see in pictures where they have like halos or auras around them. They were frightened and scared, and Jesus knew that about them. Remember, Jesus predicted that they would deny him and they would all be scattered. And still, he gave them the words that would last them a lifetime because he knew that they would come back around. Remember, after they left the upper room, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus was distressed, and he asked the disciples to pray with him for strength. And when he came back, he found them sleeping. He asked them again, please pray with me. Twice more, he came and found the same situation. And then he was arrested and taken away. Peter couldn't even admit to knowing Jesus. He denied him. And then at the crucifixion, all of them scattered. But that wasn't the end. They saw the resurrection they felt the love of Christ in their lives. And the more they practice loving like Christ, the more it transformed their lives. And so those frightened, confused disciples went on to be the ones who shared the gospel message throughout the world. Those same frightened disciples who were so afraid that at Jesus' Resurrection, they couldn't even stand by, or at the crucifixion, they couldn't even stand by, they couldn't admit knowing him, went on to become the ones whose voices were so powerful that they were persecuted and martyred for their faith. Because they continued to put on the love of Christ, it changed their lives and they changed the world. We can do the same thing. The more we put on the love of Christ, the more our lives will be changed and the more we can bring change to the world around us. In the hours and the days before Lieutenant Gwynn found the survivors, remember, he didn't get there till the fourth day. Early after the wreck, Father Conway and 
Dr. Haynes took a leadership role and they, they sought to help as many of the other sailors and Marines as they could. And so they called everyone within earshot to swim to them to form kind of a huddle for safety. They went out and they found the ones who were too scared or injured or, or tired and they went out, swam to them and then brought them back to the group. After several hours, they counted off and found that they had collected in their group more than 400. Someone had found a life ring and it had 200 feet of rope attached to it. And so they had all of the men hold on to the rope and it kind of spun them in a tight circle. Dr. Haynes was in the middle of the circle caring for the wounded as best he could. And Father Conway swam around the outside of the circle, blessing those who were struggling, performing last rites for those who were too wounded to be able to make it. He would hold up sailors who had become so fatigued they couldn't hold themselves up in the water or tread water any longer. In fact, there's a beautiful memorial statue of Father Conway and it reflects kind of what he was doing those last few days, holding up sailors and praying blessings over them. Well, this went on two days, three days. And by the fourth day, Father Conway was really experiencing the effects of what was happening around him. They all knew not to drink the salt water. Some of them gave in out of desperation, but it was deadly. But even those who never tried to drink any of the salt water, they suffered the effects of just being in the water and it splashing continually in their faces and they just continually ingested some and over time it took its toll. And by the fourth day, Father Conway was really becoming delirious. He stopped really knowing who he was and he really didn't have any conscious response to anyone around him. Instead, he reverted back to automatic responses, things that his body no longer had to think about, but they were so ingrained in who he was, he continued to do them. And so he swam, swam around and he started chanting in Latin, praying over the bodies. He started going to sailor to sailor and praying blessings over them. The final blessing that he was able to utter was over his friend, Dr. Haynes. And by that moment, Father Conway had been sw swimming almost nonstop for four days. And so Dr. Haynes held him to keep his head above water. And constantly, Father Conway was performing blessings on Dr. Haynes until he went quiet. He had so lived a life of Christ's love that his final breath on this earth was given to ask blessings for someone else. Don't we want to live lives like that? Where our final energy, our final breath is given to bless the life of someone here on earth? That we have so embodied the love of Christ that even if we aren't able to think anymore, our bodies respond by trying to bless those around us. We can do that when we put on the love of Christ every day, practicing it over and over in kindness and thoughtfulness. We do 
have a battle before us. Really, the battle is just fulfilling our mission to share God's love and bring hope to the world. And we are given a love and a light of Christ to hold up high for all to see. And so, take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.